welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, students, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. I would like to elevate and give a platform to educators and people that have been in the education system to inject the humanity and heart back into education. If you'd like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. nice to be with you today. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this episode. I am very, very excited for this one. It is an episode that I recorded with Mathilde Lambert. She was actually recommended to me to speak to by her teacher who thought she'd be an incredible person to chat to. She went non-scored for VCE. She has an interest in acting and singing. She has secured some small roles in films. Her father is also in film and she also is a musician and has a song out on Spotify called Playing Adult, which I will include at the end of the episode if you'd like to listen to it. And I'll also include the information on Matilde in the show notes regarding where you can find her. And this conversation actually contributed quite significantly to a live that I did with Maddie on Instagram, her handle is at VCalTeacher and she's doing an incredible series around what they don't teach us at university as teachers. So I will also include the link to that live and to Maddie in the show notes as well because her work is really, really important, I think, and I love her perspective on teaching and I guess just being informed about what the profession really is and how to support new teachers. I think she's doing incredible things. But Matilde actually has a really important conversation with me about the lack of Indigenous culture history acknowledgement in Victorian curriculum. And she's not wrong, to be honest. And she originally studied in, in Queensland and it's quite different there in terms of how much is integrated into the curriculum. And I love the fact that the younger generation are pretty big on hearing all sides of Australian history. I posted on Instagram an Australian history assignment that I had created in primary school and it is incredibly one-sided, which just goes to show the history that was taught in schools at one time. And it definitely showcases a lot of the holes and gaps in my own understanding that I need to fill. And I love that students and younger people are kind of holding us accountable as educators and I've spoken about this before about how much you can learn from your students and how much they hold a mirror up to us as educators and the education system and if we're willing to look in that mirror and really see what exists I think great change can occur and I really appreciate this conversation with Matilde. She also tells me about something that is very, very new. In fact, her teachers didn't even know about it, something she's going through right now. And I think that it's an important viewpoint that she expresses and something that gives me a lot of insight into seeing the world a different way. So make sure you listen. It's a fantastic episode. And I would just like to remind you that if you like the episode, please share on social media or to people directly that you think would enjoy it. 
like, subscribe, rate and review the podcast because that is what helps us kind of move in the algorithm and get into the ears of people that would like to hear it. So all of those things really, really help. And here is Matilde. Hi, Matilde. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. I thought we would launch into the year that has been of 2020 and you were supposed to be or you were in year 12 in 2020 and I'd love to know what you thought this year would look like before the pandemic. I thought that this year was honestly going to look like one of those like picturesque movie year 12 scenarios like my closest friends doing year 12 and then like growing a lot because I feel like you mature a lot as you get towards the end of high school. I just kind of planned to I guess work on myself as cheesy as that sounds and just work towards being able to leave high school and like join the adulting world but then COVID happened and I am very much a child still. So So you felt as though COVID kept you from being able to work on yourself and develop into that mature adult you expected to be by the end of 2020? No, I feel like COVID definitely pushed that further. Mm. I feel like just in doing that, I realised that childhood is not something that you really want to let go of so quickly. It's true. It's true. So what made you realise that? What made you realise that childhood is actually something to savour? Paying taxes. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you start paying taxes? Recently I got a new job, but also probably just I feel like COVID kept everybody indoors a lot and it just gave us all time to kind of think about where we were going and like kind of confront everything that was happening mentally. Like everybody's demons just kind of came out to play in COVID because like you had time to confront them. And I feel like in doing that, I don't know, I just kind of realised that uh, pushing yourself to become an adult and this like grown-up person like school always tells us we need to be probably isn't always the best thing for your mental health because you're only a kid once and like you don't really want to lose that innocence so fast I think you're right I think that at school we're so focused on who do you want to be yeah that there's not a lot of focus on who are you now yeah exactly and then we just kind of mold ourselves into people that we're not necessarily ready to become or that isn't really who we're supposed to become so what are the kind of things that have influenced the person you think you should be where does that influence come from I think that influence has come like predominantly from my upbringing with my parents because I love them. They're so amazing. I grew up in a very musical household and like mum and dad don't do the typical nine to five jobs. Dad's a film props and art director and then mum's a clinical hypnotherapist. So I need to say too, in the background, you have a whole heap of vinyls on the back of your wall and I can definitely make out Rumours by Fleetwood Mac Mm -hmm. as a cover. And what are the other two covers there behind you? Um, I've got Andy Williams. It's a tribute album. And then Don't Shoot Me. Uh, It's like, wait, that one by um, Elton John. Yeah. Amazing. Ah, Very good. So... Let's talk about your parents and the jobs that they have, as you said, not as conventional perhaps as some of the roles that other parents tend to have or other parents or school encourages you to have. So what kind of impact has that had on you? I feel like it really helped me to realise that not 
Oh, I kind of, I think it kind of pushed me more towards doing the non-school aspect of school and their careers and how like well they're going in their careers kind of made me realize that university and like that course of life, it's valid, but it's not necessarily like the one course that's going to push you towards success. And their jobs are like what make them extremely happy, not what brings in the most money. And I kind of, helped me realize that that's probably what you need to be doing more in life rather than focusing on like the big figure like nine to five career job Mm. so your mum is a clinical hypnotherapist so how do you interpret that job as her daughter I think that it's amazing I'm so proud of her for because up every day and helps people overcome their biggest fears or like issues and I feel like that's something we should all aspire to do don't necessarily professionally because like oh (laughs) but um (laughs) Well, not, but she does it seamlessly and I'm, oh, I'm so proud of her. She's a big role model. And what about your dad? So he's a props and art directing, which is kind of creating the sets and all the little details on films. And he's been doing that since before I was born. I've kind of grown up on movie sets with him, just helping him out. Uh, so I feel like that's also swayed the way that I perceive work as being more something that you should enjoy than something that brings in money and I really respect him for like going for a career that makes him happy instead of that like brings home the bank. So do you think that that doesn't necessarily marry up with the messaging you were getting at school then? 100%. I feel like the way that school pushes education and university job is very straightforward and I feel like it impacts a lot of people's mental health because of that because they feel like they aren't succeeding if they're not getting the like six figure income job with like the massive house and the 2.5 kids because that's what we're taught we need at school. So that's so interesting. Obviously I'm a teacher and I would never explicitly say that in a classroom. I would never have that as part of my messaging, but clearly for you, you've picked that up through the education system. So where do you think it comes in? Where do you hear it? I don't feel like it's a thing that they specifically say to kids. I feel like they'd get in trouble if they specifically 100%. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah. But it's just, it's kind of their underlining in the way that, well, for an example, at my school, we had continuous ICU support meetings and they were all about your career and what university you had to go to. And then the career counselling is more catered to what university courses you want and what training ships you want because it's either university or TAFE. It's not really other job options. What does ICU stand for? 13 years and I still have no idea. Oh, I don't know either. Yeah. (laughs) So it's obviously some kind of like check-in in VCE to see what path you're taking. Is that what it is? Yeah. So it just kind of tells us what we need to know for the next couple of weeks and then like helps people with their career paths. And you have decided to go non-scored. Is that correct in year 12? Yeah. Tell me about that decision to go non-scored. I decided to do that in year 10. That was something that I realised and that's just because I always knew that the path I wanted to take outside of school was not one that required a university training or an ATAR and that if I was going to be doing an ATAR, it would be taking away the focus from like achieving my goals to like further my career because I want to be a musician and an actress Mm -hmm. and so to do that it's a lot of like extracurricular work lessons and gigs and like performing 
doing that while also doing like full-time VC working towards an ATAR they don't really coincide together as easily Mm -hmm. so thought that it would probably be smarter to focus on what I actually enjoyed and loved and wanted to make my career than something that's not really going to assist me at all. In VCE what kind of subjects did you select? I chose uh, literature, drama, business management and um, English. Okay so all things that are going to assist you in that pathway. Yeah exactly I wasn't going to do something that was like completely the opposite direction of like what I wanted to achieve. And how did the school, when you go through course counselling and, as you say, these meetings, these ICU meetings, was the school completely supportive of that or was there often that kind of subliminal messaging of, but do you have something stable to fall back on? I found that they were really certain teachers were incredibly supportive, like absolutely amazing. Like our principal, she made sure that everything could happen for me and, like, I'm so grateful for her. But a lot of the, like, career counselling teachers Mm. or teachers that would help make the pathways were always very focused on, okay, but what's the backup when this doesn't work? Mm. Like, it doesn't work. What's, like, the second option? It's like, well, no. You don't say that to someone if they're like, oh, I want to go study to be a nurse. So what's the Mm. difference? So did you find that a bit condescending? Not necessarily condescending. I feel like it just stems from the way that they've grown up I suppose so it's not uh oh it's not gonna work out condescending like appeal it's probably just like that's what's been ingrained into them through like life I agree and so how did year 12 look for you considering you were stuck at home for a lot of it remote learning for a lot of it and I'm assuming a lot of gigs and things were cancelled oh yeah everything was cancelled I actually found the COVID thing quite helpful. Like okay. I, it took away from the whole year 12 experience, but in doing that I feel like it gave me a lot of time to kind of figure out who I was before I got thrown into that adult life. And then it helped me with writing music and everything because being sad and lonely in COVID is a really good like song background. Really helped. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, and I just had time to record music and figure out everything I wanted to do and do my schoolwork and music at home so I had more time to focus on that as well. So who have you decided you are now after all of that contemplating? Um we're still not there yet. (laughs) Neither am I. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I'm just me. I just no label, just Tilly. Yep. Do you find that there is too much labeling and too much putting you in a box? Oh, hundred percent. Everybody needs a box nowadays. It's like you're either this, or you're that, and then if you don't fit into like a certain box, everybody's like worried and like who they are. And it's something that really stems from the way that the education system is programmed as well. So, hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. What boxes would people put you in? Do you think life-wise or education-wise? You can interpret that however you like. I feel like personally outside of school separate from that the boxes I would kind of be put more into a like creativity music kind of person which society kind of like looks down upon in a way I suppose. okay because it's mm-hmm. not the oh, I'm trying to think of how to put this it's not like an insured way of making money yep but I'm okay with that because it makes me happy so that's what really matters but um yep and then also because I 
have autism so I'm definitely in that box of like okay people and I feel like when people suffer from mental illnesses or just things that make them a little bit more different like different we get boxed really quickly and then it's a difficult box to kind of shake off so tell me about that element when were you diagnosed with autism I'm currently in the middle of getting like the exact diagnosis because it's something we put off for a long time just because the way that we kind of looked at it is like no matter what kind I am Mm. I'm still like it doesn't really change me and it's like once you get that you're like semi-high functioning or high functioning it kind of affects the way that everybody else looks at you. What's the decision now then to go through that process when the label perhaps wasn't as important or wasn't necessary? Well just the way that autism is structured in girls Mm -hmm. usually it's harder to identify sometimes it wasn't so much in my case but um, like in other people it is and uh, it impacts you a lot through the way that you perceive the world just like the way that we perceive the media or like friendships and everything and it was always something I could never quite understand so I guess in getting that diagnosis it kind of helps me understand a lot more about like the way that I perceive things and like be able to find people that can kind of help me understand like how to cope with certain things as well. Yeah. I have said on the podcast before that I taught this brilliant little boy in year seven and I had him in science and I was lucky because that was his thing. And he was on the ASD spectrum and had been diagnosed very, very early and had a lot of great strategies to support him. But I still remember him saying to me, everybody tells me that I have autism, but I don't know really what that means. I know that I have this label, but I only can see the world the way that I see it exactly it hit me so much in the heart I got that I'm like yeah everyone's telling you that you don't see things the way everybody else does but you can't ever really know what that is same for me I can't understand what it's like to see the world through a neurodiverse lens either so I'm wondering if you could maybe shed some light on the way you see the world I'd love to hear maybe some of the things that you realized you did need some more clarification around I feel like with just the way that I personally am, because it's different with every person, I didn't realise how easily people perceived social interactions. It was never something that I got. So from when I was little, I could never look people in the eyes. And I just thought that that was something that everybody else had. And I could never understand why people would Mm. get weird by the fact that I couldn't continuously look somebody in the eye when I was having a conversation with them because I just thought that's what everybody else did and it took a while for me to realize it's a thing of like it's kind of like a fear of that connection because it's it's very confrontational and it's kind of something that makes a lot of people that have autism feel anxious because it's like you know too much about someone when you look at their eyes and I feel like that was something yeah kind of needed more clarity on and just social interactions in general like the way that you react to people talking or um, acting class and stuff it kind of took a while to I guess almost mirror the way that people do that I feel like that's something that I do a lot is looking at at the people around me and mirroring the way that they perceive social interactions to kind of like look normal I've kind of stopped doing it now because it's not really me and I really okay to I guess come off a little bit differently but for majority of high school in class and everything, I was constantly spending time seeing how everybody else was perceiving 
the way that the teacher was talking or the way that like people were reacting to news and social situations so that I'd know that my reaction was correct because usually we can't really get the same reaction as everybody else. Do you think that supported you then in moving into acting? The fact that you feel in a way that you've had to constantly look at social interactions, reactions, emotions from other people. I mean, you're clearly like creating a whole bank of acting tips for yourself, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Honestly, it's definitely helped me with acting. I feel like it makes me be able to get into characters a lot easier than I would have if I didn't have autism just because I spent my whole life kind of playing somebody that I wasn't at school. How important was it for you, I'm going to say this in air quotes, to appear normal? So important because when I was really little I used to get made fun of for not looking people in the eyes or being like weird and then Mm. that sticks with you and so it was until I think two months ago not a single friend knew that I was on the spectrum. And I yep. terrified, like absolutely terrified to let anybody know that because I just had it ingrained in my head from everything that you see everywhere that like once somebody realises that they're going to treat me different and they're going to look at me like I'm weird or like they can't talk to me normally anymore. And you see it as well in when there's certain kids that are at school that have like lower functioning autism. Yeah. Like in a lot of boys, they don't mask it the same that girls do which is why girls go undiagnosed for so long. And I would see, we like I had a couple boys with autism or Asperger's in classes when I was younger and I'd see how the kids would make fun of them and that just stuck with me. And I was like, well, if I stopped masking and acted a little bit how they are because that's kind of how I am, then is that going to happen to me? Like will I lose all my friends? Will I become like the pit of everybody's joke? This is, and it's, we think we've come so far in some respects, you know, to try and normalise mental illness and labels and different learning challenges and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, we have Are You OK Day and we discuss things and we are trying, I think, to remove the stigma, but it's not gone, is it? It's definitely not gone. It's People are definitely trying a lot to remove the stigma and my friends could not care less. I'm, like, I am so lucky that... No, I'm not lucky because that's just how it should be. But, like, given yeah. how a lot of people are, I'm very lucky that my friends literally, I told them, they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Were you scared to tell them? What was that situation like? I just kind of blurted it out one day. Yeah. We were talking about something and I I did something. I can't quite remember what it was. And then they were like, oh, ha, ha, Tilly. And I was like, ha, 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 me and my autism. Right. And then, wait, what? And I was like, oh, yeah. And that was just that. And um- has it changed anything? Has it shifted anything? Not at all. Honestly, I think it made my friendships with them better because they can understand certain things that I need to do a lot more mm. beforehand, just like when I need to remove myself from social situations because I'm getting like an overload or like just little things I do, like um, tapping is a thing okay. that like centers you down when you're like feeling overloaded by like the sensory things. And now they kind of understand, like, what I'm doing when I'm doing this. So I feel like it's a lot better. So you've been doing this and you've sort of created your own strategies to deal with the world without professional support. So you've just figured it out yourself, have you? Well, mum's a hypnotherapist, so mm-hmm. I lucked out in that sense because she 
knows a lot about not dealing with being on the spectrum per se, but just dealing with like anxiety and a lot of the things that come with being on the spectrum. Mm. And so he gave me millions of tools to use that I've just kind of manipulated a little bit to kind of suit this and everything yeah. that I I remember, and again, I'd love for you to correct me, but I remember we had one year where there was an influx of students that came that were on the ASD spectrum. And so we were given a talk by somebody who said that people on the spectrum don't really know or that the world around them is very confusing and they're told to live in this world that they don't fully understand. And so because of that, it creates a level of anxiety. And so for a neurotypical person, you know, your anxiety is, let's say I'm using my body as the level, you know, it might sit at, you know, your, your hip level or something like that. But for somebody who is neurodiverse, it can sit up, you know, by your eyebrows, your anxiety constantly. And yeah. so it's so important to control the environment so that there's not too much unexpected because the environment is already so confusing, which is why, you know, routine and, understanding how the day is going to plan out and where we're always told to ensure that you don't make sudden changes. If you want to do something different, you just have to let them know what's going on first so that they can have the opportunity to come to terms with what's going to happen. Yeah, 100% that. Okay. I mean, I can speak for everybody, but personally, I like in classes or just like um, certain life things, if – there was a change. If it was explained, I'm so fine because I process it through my mind and, like, I make steps and I know what to do. But if there's, like, a drastic change and I don't know the process that I'm supposed to use or mm. the method for it, it causes a lot of anxiety. And usually just in general, I'm a lot better now because I've worked on it, but my anxiety has always been, like, up here. Especially so she's pointing to above her head just for listeners yeah yeah and I never could understand why everybody else wasn't like that I always yeah. just thought everybody was anxious I always had to have my mum double check the locks on the doors or like the windows before I went to sleep and then my other friends would sleep with their windows open and mm. they'd be like it's so fine like it's fine but I'd be like well there's this number of cases of break-ins a year and there's like like, if you look at the statistics, like, you could be, like, this certain figure. Mm. I find that I'd, like, need plans on, like, what to do if anything bad happened. It was always something that I would have struggled with. Yeah. I wonder, too, whether or not some of these conversations are important to put out in the open because, as you say, you make assumptions about people without really understanding what's going on underneath and somebody might flip out over something that you think, well, why did you flip out about that? That's ridiculous. But if you just understood where their anxiety level sits or where their priorities lie, then we can be kinder to one another, I think. I feel like it's definitely really important. I think that it's something that really should be taught in primary school because Mm. so many people don't even understand why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. Like when I was little, I had no idea what like I was, I guess, in a sense it makes you feel closed off and kind of isolated. And then everybody around you unknowingly isolates you as well because they haven't been taught how to, like, understand what's going on with the people around them. Mm. I feel like everybody would kind of benefit if we just 
learnt from a young age, like what goes through different people's heads. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think making every emotion valid is important rather than just the ones that make you feel good. Exactly. And also every reaction to changes in situations or just like events in general because not everybody's going to react the same and then the way that certain people are programmed mentally or like physically or whatever really does affect the way that they're going to react and they shouldn't necessarily feel um, like they have to hide that or create masking coping mechanisms to make sure that we feel like atypical or normal. Yeah. So what kinds of strategies or support did you get from home from your mum? Um, my mum just kind of always made it out like I was just me and we never put any labels really on anything and she just, if ever I'd have like meltdowns or like overloads, which is something that would happen a lot just because mm-hmm. of like when I'm in, I used to go to like a really academic structured school before I moved down to Victoria mm-hmm. and with the way that I'm like programmed planning and structure is like a massive part of my life and something that I really like having and it's kind mm-hmm. of a coping mechanism as well but it would get kind of taken into overdrive I suppose okay. mm-hmm. because like that structure is just like so important and it would just kind of get overused or like over implemented and mum just kind of adjusted life and like the techniques we'd use at home to suit that rather than making me feel like I always needed to change or like become somebody else. She just changed things so that I could keep being myself, but just not as like neurotic, I suppose. Yeah. How does all of that fit into a job or a career that isn't particularly structured, that is very passion-based, that is the best person for the role will get the role, the gig might happen might not happen how does that kind of fit in for you well with the whole acting side of things I can kind of see a structure for it just because I've grown up with it so it's not really something that I don't know a lot about it's something that I've spent my whole life in and it just kind of seems like a natural career progression because my dad's already in the industry yep and I know that like the certain actor with the look will get the job and like you use a certain techniques once you get into the job and they have this is why I love it they have cold right. sheets like okay. what you need to be doing when you need to be doing it at the exact time that you need to be doing it. And I feel like that is a lot of the appeal. And then also the playing different people aspect of it. It, it just, those kind of jobs and music as well, you have call sheets and the way you write songs, there's chord progressions and like methods to the way that you write lyrics. So all of that just kind of helps me express who I am without directly going, hey, guys, I'm autistic. Yeah, yeah. So it just seems like something that feels comfortable for you. Yeah, it's very comforting, which Mm. I feel like is a job that everybody should kind of look towards, finding something that makes them feel comfortable and not like they're always on edge. It's just soothing. I'd like to say, too, that as you're speaking, your entire face changed. (laughs) You look so peaceful and happy discussing those two careers so you can see that obviously that is something that's from the heart for you definitely a hundred percent it's like makes me very happy talk to me about working with your dad it's interesting because he's my dad (laughs) obviously working with a parent is fun (laughs) um 
I love it, except for the fact that Dad can be bossy when he's on set. Okay. Obviously, because he has to get done. But it's really um, insightful just because not only does he show me everything that he does, but because we're working with the actors as well the whole time. I get to learn everything that they do and then everything that the directors do, so it's really educational. And so what kind of roles have you had so far? Acting or with my dad? In acting. So I was a featured extra in Swinging Safari, which was this movie with Kylie Minogue and Asha Ketty. Mm -hmm. And then I was also in this short about, it was kind of like an educational short about um, the effects of divorce on children Mm -hmm. and then I used to be with center stage management Mm -hmm. so I went up for a couple big roles I didn't end up getting them but I was very excited to be considered and then I'm in the process of like switching management at the moment because I'm over 16 now which means I can work longer hours on set okay so it opens up and what kinds of projects has your dad been involved in that have been influential I suppose for you probably a lot of like the feature films that he's been on I found very influential because I get brought on set and that's kind of where my love for acting started because I'd be in that environment all the time from like three onwards Mm -hmm. and then dad does um documentaries about aboriginal rights Mm -hmm. that impacted my outlook on life as well because it kind of made me see from a young age that there are multiple people living in like multiple walks of life that aren't necessarily getting the same rights representation that I am. So what's the lens that he is trying to portray in those documentaries? Like what's the message? I feel each one differs, but at the moment the ones that he's focusing on are more of like prison reform. Okay. For um, Aboriginal incarceration rates and also the fact that the way that the prison system is set up in Australia, it doesn't really cater for the cultural differences that each people or each person has when they're going in there. So for an example, in a lot of Aboriginal culture, because they're they're all different, but in a lot of the cultures, music is a massive part of expressing who you are and figuring out who you are and passing down stories. And music is not really something that's incorporated into a lot of prisons that have a high incarceration rate for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. And so it detrimentally impacts their mental health or their connection to their culture or to the land or to who they are as a person. And then it kind of forces people to lose themselves. Seeing the significance of music and storytelling from this cultural perspective and also in the creation of identity has that linked for you from what you've seen in these kind of documentaries to what you're being really drawn to definitely I think that was one of the main pulls mm. for me getting and also was like one of the main components I put into the way that I write music as in telling a story or passing down stories or traditions is like kind of what I try and interject into the way that I write songs I think it is such a shame isn't it that we are put through this system that values academia specifically but with academia the self-expression isn't quite there often and you're expected to do those things on the side we're not really taught how to do that very well I don't think at schools 
and you having that exposure to a culture that shows you how to express yourself in a creative way that's safe and normalized, I'm wondering where that needs to fit or whether that should be fitting more into the curriculum. Well, in I was really shocked when I moved down here by the lack of curriculum based on Aboriginal. Right. Culture. Where were you prior, sorry? I lived in Queensland. Okay. And in there that's, well, part of it, not all of it, but we learn there's topics on it every single year from prep to 12 and then we have days where we commemorate the land that we were on and our houses are named after the like animals that the tribe like the names of the animals of the tribes that were on our land or on their land had and so everything was kind of centered on learning about like dreamtime stories and the structure of music for like each individual group's culture and that's just something that you learn and you know because it's something that you should know because yeah. we're on their land and then I came down here and I was so shocked by not a single element in fused into the curriculum yeah what when did you get here what year year nine mm. I think that there's movement but to me at the moment it just it just seems a little bit tick the box I don't know if you feel that I'm not sure that it's really as authentic as it could be. I feel like it covers the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know more about what your thoughts are. Especially this year, the um, in year 12, I know a lot of people studied The Seven mm-hmm. Stages of Grieving, which is a book about an Aboriginal woman kind of coming to terms with the death of her grandma and hence the loss of culture mm-hmm. associated with that. Something kind of appalling that I found was in the classes not a single student knew the justification behind certain like cultural aspects in the play like at the beginning it mentions how there may be photographs or references to people that are past and how that might be traumatizing or not all right for certain members of the community watching the play because that's just something that's part of the culture and that's something we Mm. learned when we were in Mm. prep where I was from single person understood why and that kind of it baffles me that it's something so huge like so important to a like the oldest living culture on earth not to mention the culture of our country had not been mentioned from prep to 12. I think that we see far more about black slavery in America than we know necessarily about our own what's going on in our own backyard I think that There needs to be far more light. And, I mean, America is so, you know, prolific in its storytelling. It's everywhere, you know. But I don't think we're doing it that well here. We're not. We, they, there is no, no curriculum for, like, portraying the stories. There's really just no framework at all in our society except for the people that are part of the community that are, like, fighting for their voices to be heard mm. and it's barely heard anyway it's mm. like a squeak because it gets covered up by what's going on in america or american slavery and it's like we had a kind mm. of slavery here too and we had oppression we had stolen generation we had so many horrific acts that happened to the people that had this land that nobody is listening to and i feel like if everybody just start started to learn the bare minimum at least it would drastically impact 
the way that people part of that culture are affected in today's society currently. I think the reframing of it too as not us and them because it feels very much, well, I mean, look, I also went to school a long time ago and I remember we did have an Aboriginal painter come to primary school and we were all involved in his painting and I remember doing something about a Dreamtime story and that's it, the rainbow serpent. That's all I learned formally at school. That's all I learned. So this is the hard part. If I want to educate myself, I have to do that in my own time. But what needs to be happening is that it's part of everyday learning and we learn to read and write. We need to learn about our own culture. And I think that Australia is so quick to say what culture because we're all from different places. But the thing is, is that we do. We do have a really rich culture that, For some reason, we're too busy looking at European history or American history. I don't know if we think that's more interesting, but there isn't enough. I I learnt about Captain Cook discovering Australia. Yeah, her eyes are like big. I did a project on it. I did a project on it. So this is the thing. We've got a lot of unlearning to do as 35-year-olds and above, we have a lot of unlearning to do. And I think that you guys of your generation are like, we need this. You guys are probably more outspoken than the generation teaching you, I think. I would hope that we would Mm -hmm. be because I feel like there definitely needs to be someone, like a group that are going to speak out, like a generation. There needs to be a generational change because it's not heading in a good path and it is our culture and it's definitely something that everybody needs to learn about. And it's a beautiful culture as well. I feel like Australia is too scared to confront it because of the atrocities that were committed and the lack, majority of like white settler ancestors committed. I feel like it's a fear of not wanting to confront that and really dive into like teaching people what we really did to the original owners of this land. Because when that comes out, there's going to be a very different change on Australia Day and Captain Cook because no one's talking about the mass genocides that happened or still happen. I think you're right. I think that, if anything, I'm hoping that 2020 has shown us that out of great discomfort can come genuine change and progress. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So for you, moving into the world, what is it to be successful for you? I used to think that success was based on the magnitude of your achievements. I feel like that kind of stemmed from the whole letter grade mm-hmm. thing that we did in high school and just like everything you see around you, like the success was based off of how many zeros you have in your bank account or how many houses you have or what title your job is mm-hmm. or how many followers you have. But I think COVID and being away from everything and being in my own environment kind of helped me get out of that kind of toxic idea of success and move more towards success is that you're having a positive impact on the world whether that be one person or a hundred people that whatever you're doing in life is making a positive difference and that whatever you're doing in life is making a positive impact on your mental health as well Mm. I think that's you brought up followers and social media. What is your interaction and 
impression of social media as somebody coming out of their teenage years? It's kind of conflicting because the industries that I want to go into are very social media dominated and film and television is essentially a part of the media. Mm. But as a teenager living in it, I think that it's extremely toxic. Because? Because it's continuous images of what we should be, not what we are, and who you need to be instead of embracing who you are, who you want to be. And there are a lot of aspects where you people do embrace that and that is shown, but I feel like the generalised way that the media is put forth towards people, especially youth, mm-hmm. is kind of creating toxic body ideologies and then also just impacting mental health because it's so many hours spent on it to keep up with, like, trends mm-hmm. or to have the followers because apparently the amount of people that see your post represents your worth mm-hmm. in society. How toxic do you think that algorithm is, understanding that there is an algorithm and having to play that game in some way to be seen? I think that that algorithm is responsible for a lot of the oppression that happens within our world because we're only seeing what we believe. So we're not really getting to look outside of our own perception of the world. And because of that, it's easy to be biased against other people's opinions and it makes it harder for us to burst the kind of bubble of what our reality is Mm. and realise that um, certain people are experiencing a lot of oppression because we don't see it because it's not based on our algorithm. Yes, I so agree. We've talked a lot about what school isn't doing particularly well. What do you think school does well? What is it getting right? Um, I think... Hard question, apparently. <laughs> a little bit, just because I feel like it doesn't necessarily take into account each individual person. Mm. So that makes it difficult to, like, sort out the benefits because my benefits might be different to other people's. Well, talk, talk about it from your your perspective then. Personally, I think the thing, a, a lot of, like, subjects that we learn, especially when we're younger, are really helpful to developing like our character like English I think the way that we're continually reading stories and like broadening our perspective is so amazing and it's so impactful into the way that we like grow and how we become like the people that we want to be Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's a really good thing that schools are still doing Mm. that and like helping people to kind of find their voice academically yep because I feel like we can take that and put it into life sometimes which is good so you're saying that really the stories that we choose in English are really important to encourage perspective but also for representation right so that you can see yourself in a story and go wow I could actually be successful or wow I am actually normal and I say in air quotes or whatever so those stories are important aren't they in in how we select them yeah, exactly. And they also show what other people from other walks of life are going through. Yeah. So it kind of helps you to be able to like empathize and understand each different person's circumstances and gives everybody some representation, which is really important. Yeah. Can you think of any texts that you've studied that have really stood out to you that you've really enjoyed studying? There's so many. I have to pick one. Okay. I loved studying. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I studied a movie of failure. I think that's what it's called. It's in Spanish. Yep. I loved that because of all the motives that were used in it and the symbolism. And then 
a text that I read when I was younger. I can't remember the exact name of it. It was something we read okay. when we were in year six. It was about the journey. It was written based off the journeys mm-hmm. of asylum seekers coming towards Australia, but it was based off like one child and their family and like their journey over here. And I felt like that impacted me a lot because at that point I knew, but I didn't completely understand what it was like coming from a war-torn country to my country. And I didn't understand the processes of like the islands, the detention centres. I didn't quite Mm. understand how horrific that was or why people needed to come here so bad. And I feel like it gave me a lot of perspective and the ability to empathise and like fight for change for other people. Yeah, I agree. I actually taught this, it's a text, you probably love it actually, it's When Things Fall Apart by Chinua Shebe and I hope I've said that correctly and it's beautiful. It's a really, really important text and it is the one of the first texts written in the 1960s from an African's perspective about the tribe because most of the time, or the tribal um, elements, because most of the time they were written from white people's perspectives and they were portrayed as savage and savages and it was amazing because he talked about the fact that there was rules there were regulations there were laws there was hierarchy it just wasn't the same as what we did or what Europeans did and it created such for me and it it didn't shy away from the fact that there were killings and there were quite savage elements in their actions but it gave the reason and there was reason nothing was done for the sake of it and I think that texts like that are so so important to offer that perspective, to see things from the inside if we can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it's so hard to actually understand what the real world is like if you're only looking at it from the outside. Definitely. What kind of impacts do you think there are for you growing up as a female in society? What kinds of things are easier, harder, more influential for you? Easier, I think, in certain ways. Not completely, but in some aspects, representation of femininity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like a lot of men get condemned for expressing their femininity. It's starting to shift a little bit. Not a lot. Not what needs to be done. I feel like we're really lucky that we have like a broad opportunity of like what clothes we can wear because so many people get condemned for wearing skirts when they are polish and I feel like I take that for granted sometimes yeah. without realising. But then at the same time, society loves to judge everything that a woman wears and twist it into how it makes us asking for whatever comes towards us based on our clothing. Mm. It's such a hard tightrope to walk, isn't it? Exactly. I feel like as a woman, the moment that you're born, you're kind of put into a box that is constantly figuring out ways to constrain you and grow smaller until you're basically suffocating. And to be a woman in today's society means just to fight against that and like do whatever you can to get out of that box. Do you think that we've come some way in that? I think we've definitely come some way. I mean, we can vote, which is... <laughs> yes. Which should already have been the thing, but apparently not. Mm. So I feel like in certain aspects we've gotten our basic human rights yes. in some countries, but I feel like there is a long way to go because apparently society still feels the need to comment on how a woman chooses to use her body or her mind. I could not agree more. And I think that 
we're often told not to be too loud or to not take up too much space or to do things in a way that is palatable. And if I could tell anybody, any female anywhere, don't have to do that. Yeah, exactly. Be as loud as you possibly can. Yeah, and say it the way you want to. Exactly, not the way that's going to appease everybody else. Correct, correct. So where do you see yourself? And we've been talking about how bad this question is. I'm going to ask you anyway. Where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? What is the projection for you? Or do you not like to think about life that way? No, I like to think about life that way. In five to ten years, I probably see myself being quite successful in acting and music. And I wouldn't mind having the award behind my belt, but I don't know if we get too far ahead there. So that's the goal. That's like the superficial goal. The like goal goal would probably be to just be doing something that makes me happy and feeling comfortable completely in myself Mm. and like not hiding anything about myself anymore. I probably should have asked this earlier, but I want to ask you, what makes a good teacher? I think a good teacher is somebody that can identify each student's learning abilities and figure out a way to cater their curriculum and program to the individual learning strategies rather than one that, like, not everybody suits or fits into and to also inspire personalised voices in the students, like them discovering their own identities instead of fitting into the boxes that we're given. I think that's what makes a good teacher. Have you had a particular teacher that has had a really positive impact on you? Yes, definitely. When I was in year seven, I had my English teacher called Miss Hamilton and I never considered myself that good at English, which ended up being my best subject. Mm. It was always just something that I liked doing. But I was never like, oh, my God, like I'm actually really good at this. And then when I got into her class, she kind of pushed me into doing poetry and writing. And I don't know if she knew what she was doing at the time, but her pushing me to doing that and figuring out who I was in that sense is one of the main influences into me writing music now. Like I still use similar methods that she taught me to write poetry when I write songs. And so without her doing I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. So to me, songwriting is poetry of the day. That's the medium that poetry is the most accessible now. Exactly. Yeah. What are the greatest lessons you have ever learnt? It doesn't have to be about school. It can just be life lessons, however you would like to interpret that question. Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. Probably that whatever you're doing in life, you're on the right path as long as you're inspiring change and you yourself are feeling comfortable and happy. And how did you learn that lesson? So that's a big lesson to learn at, you know, 18. 17. 17. That's what's an even bigger lesson. Seventeen. So how do you learn that lesson? I don't think there's one particular way to learn it. I learned it from my mum, especially she always was going on about that you need to make sure that what you're doing makes you happy. And I would always be like, oh, my God, Mum, like, okay, here we go again. Mm. But then I've dealt with a lot of, like, mental illness and, like, covering up who I am mm. and not being happy. And then I feel like COVID and being taken away from all that really uh, made me realise that there's no point in going on and continuing to do certain things if it's just making me feel 
Like I don't want to be there doing it. Yeah. It's such a hard thing. I think naturally when you hit into those teenage years, you naturally try and move away from the home unit to look outside and to see the community, the media, all of the bigger influential elements of the world. And you do tend to not take so seriously or with as great importance what your parents say. You're trying to figure out who you are outside of that family unit. So I'm glad that you were able to hear that, that you hear that message from your mum. Yeah, I think it was very important that I actually started listening to that piece of advice because it's really and look hopefully people are listening to this as a member of the greater community and you've inspired somebody Matilda that'd be amazing oh that'd be a dream come true that'd be awesome well thank you so much for giving me all of your time I really appreciate your perspective thank you so much that's all right thank you so much for having me this was really fun and here is Matilda's track playing adult you don't know yeah you don't know where we are I wanna go home again Want my old life back then Now look at us, yeah, we've gone and come too far Playing as kids, but now We've gone and grown up somehow So I dream to remember Dream.